This is Residence 104.4 FM. Flipping marvellous. How are you? I, I am Nick Hennigan. So, you know, blame me mother and me father. Uh, and uh, this is another slice of literary London uh, on Residence 104.4 FM and, of course, um, on bohemianbritain.com. How you doing? We have part two of our requests to come uh, next time. Um, part one was uh, last time and went rather well and I had, was quite overwhelmed really which is rather rather lovely uh, so if there's a particular uh, song or a poem or a um, you know a sort of particular bit of music that would move you and you'd like to dedicate it to someone then just drop us an email uh, probably the best email now is nick at bohemianbritain.com nick at bohemianbritain.com but the other one radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk also works I've also discovered rediscovered where's it gone I'm my, we're on um on, uh, I'm on I'm on Twitter or X or whatever it's called at the moment. There's uh, I've got my regular one, but I think I'm down as Lit London Radio at Lit London Radio. So go, <laughs> so if you're on X Twitter, just go and have a quick look. And if I am there, like me and say hello. Yes, you are on there at Lit London Radio. It's all a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Eh? Yes. Anyway, I hope you've had a good week. Um, we're going to be sort of talking about someone who really well was a huge name in London, but was actually born in Ireland. Because on the 16th of October, 1854, there was a child in Ireland born called Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Wills Wilde. Yep, Oscar Wilde was born this weekend, around this time, in 1854. Uh, of course, uh, you know, Everyone knows the name Oscar Wilde, don't they, really? He was, but he, he was writing in different forms. When he first started writing, he was writing in different forms through the 1880s. But um, he went on, of course, to become one of the most popular playwrights in London, here in London, in the early 1890s. Um, he's best remembered probably for his epigrams and plays. His novel, of course, also made into a film, The, uh, the Picture of Dorian Gray. And, of course, perhaps most notoriously, the circumstances of his criminal conviction for gross indecency, as it was called in those days, for quote, consensual homosexual acts. Yeah, it was one of the first kind of celebrity trials as it was billed at the time. Um, and now just sounds so ridiculous and horrible. But that was then. And this is now. Oscar Wilde's parents were uh, Anglo-Irish intellectuals, really, um, uh, in Dublin. So in his youth, Oscar learned to speak fluent French and German. Uh, so not surprisingly, he went to university to read the greats. He demonstrated himself to be an exceptional classicist, first at the Trinity College in Dublin and then at Magdalen College in Oxford. After he left university in Oxford, of course, Oscar Wilde returned to London, or at least came to London, moved to London, I should say, and got into sort of fashionable cultural and social circles. Um, at the height of his fame and success, whilst the importance of being earnest and big uh, in 1895 was still being performed in London, Oscar Wilde prosecuted the Marcus of Queensbury for criminal libel. Now, the Marquis was the father of Oscar Wilde's lover, Lord Alfred Douglas. Um, and it was perhaps Oscar Wilde. So Marquis of Queensby was kind of spreading rumours about Oscar Wilde and Bosey, of course. Uh, and so Oscar Wilde decided to uh, prosecute the Marquis of Queensbury. 
Not the best idea, really, of course, because the libel trial, uh, the libel trial unearthed evidence that caused Oscar Wilde to drop his charges, but it then, of course, led to his own arrest and trial for gross indecency with men, as it was known. Um, after two more trials, he was convicted and he was sentenced to two years hard labour, the maximum penalty, uh, and was jailed from 1895 to 1897. God, again, it sounds so ridiculous now, doesn't it? Thankfully, it sounds, no, it sounds so ridiculous nowadays. Um, during his last year in prison, he wrote De Profundis, uh, which was published posthumously in 1905, a long letter that discusses his spiritual journey through his trials. Uh, it forms a sort of a dark counterpoint, really, to his, um, his early, earlier philosophy of, you know, pleasure and some of the great quotes he came out with, which I might share with you in a minute. <laughs> um, on his release... Uh, Oscar Wilde immediately left for France and never returned to Ireland or Britain. Um, there he wrote his last work, The Ballad of Reading Jail, in 1898, which is a poem commentating on the harsh rhythms of prison life. And to commemorate the birth of Oscar Wilde, here is a rather lovely version um, of the uh, Ballad of Reading Jail, read beautifully by Sean Barrett. Oscar Wilde, 1856-1900 to The Ballad of Reading Jail He did not wear his scarlet coat, for blood and wine are red, and blood and wine were on his hands when they found him with the dead, the poor dear woman whom he loved and murdered in her bed. He walked amongst the trial men in a suit of shabby grey, a cricket cap was on his head, and his step seemed light and gay but I never saw a man who looked so wistfully at the day. I never saw a man who looked with such a wistful eye upon that little tent of blue which prisoners call the sky, and at every drifting cloud that went with sails of silver by. I walked with other souls in pain within another ring, and was wondering if the man had done a great or little thing, when a voice behind me whispered low, That fellow's got to swing. Dear Christ, the very prison walls suddenly seemed to reel, and the sky above my head became like a cask of scorching steel, and though I was a soul in pain, my pain I could not feel. I only knew what hunted thought quickened his step and why he looked upon the garish day with such a wistful eye. The man had killed the thing he loved, and so he had to die. Yet each man kills the thing he loves, by each let this be heard. Some do it with a bitter look, some with a flattering word. The coward does it with a kiss, the brave man with a sword. Some kill their love when they are young, and some when they are old. Some strangle with the hands of lust, some with the hands of gold. The kindest use a knife, because the dead so soon grow cold. Some love too little, some too long, some sell and others buy. Some do the deed with many tears and some without a sigh. For each man kills the thing he loves, yet each man does not die. He does not die a death of shame on a day of dark disgrace, nor have a noose about his neck, nor a cloth upon his face, nor drop feet foremost through the floor into an empty space. He does not sit with silent men who watch him night and day, who watch him when he tries to weep and when he tries to pray, who watch him lest himself should rob the prison of its prey. 
He does not wake at dawn to see dread figures throng his room, the shivering chaplain robed in white, the sheriff stern with gloom, and the governor all in shiny black with the yellow face of doom. He does not rise in piteous haste to put on convict clothes, while some coarse-mouthed doctor gloats and notes each new and nerve-twitched pose, fingering a watch whose little ticks are like horrible hammer blows. He does not know that sickening thirst that sands one's throat before the hangman with his gardener's gloves comes through the padded door and binds one with three leathern thongs that the throat may thirst no more. He does not bend his head to hear the burial office read. Now, while the anguish of his soul tells him he is not dead, cross his own coffin as he moves into the hideous shed. He does not stare upon the air through a little roof of glass. He does not pray with lips of clay for his agony to pass, nor feel upon his shuddering cheek the kiss of Caiaphas. Six weeks our guardsman walked the yard in the suit of shabby grey. His cricket cap was on his head, and his step seemed light and gay. But I never saw a man who looked so wistfully at the day. I never saw a man who looked with such a wistful eye upon that little tent of blue which prisoners call the sky, and at every wandering cloud that trailed its raveled fleeces by. He did not wring his hands, as do those witless men who dare to try to rear the changeling hope in the cave of black despair. He only looked upon the sun and drank the morning air. He did not wring his hands nor weep, nor did he peek or pine, but he drank the air as though it held some healthful anodyne. With open mouth he drank the sun as though it had been wine. And I and all the souls in pain who tramped the other ring forgot if we ourselves had done a great or little thing, and watched with gaze of dull amaze the man who had to swing. For strange it was to see him pass, with a step so light and gay, and strange it was to see him look so wistfully at the day, and strange it was to think that he had such a debt to pay. For oak and elm have pleasant leaves that in the springtime shoot, but grim to see is the gallows tree with its adder-bitten root, and green or dry a man must die before it bears its fruit. The loftiest place is that seat of grace for which all worldlings try. But who would stand in hempen band upon a scaffold high, and through a murderer's collar take his last look at the sky? It is sweet to dance to violins when love and life are fair. To dance to flutes, to dance to lutes, is delicate and rare. But it is not sweet with nimble feet to dance upon the air. So with curious eyes and sick surmise we watched him day by day and wondered if each one of us would end the selfsame way, for none can tell to what red hell his sightless soul may stray. At last the dead man walked no more amongst the trial men, and I knew that he was standing up in the black dock's dreadful pen and that never would I see his face in God's sweet world again. Like two doomed ships that pass in storm, we had crossed each other's way. But we made no sign, we said no word, we had no word to say. For we did not meet in the holy night, but in the shameful day. 
A prison wall was round us both, two outcast men we were. The world had thrust us from its heart, and God from out his care. And the iron gin that waits for sin had caught us in its snare. In debtor's yard the stones are hard, and the dripping wall is high. So it was there he took the air beneath the leaden sky, and by each side a warder walked for fear the man might die. Or else he sat with those who watched his anguish night and day, who watched him when he rose to weep and when he crouched to pray, who watched him lest himself should rob their scaffold of its prey. The governor was strong upon the Regulations Act. The doctor said that death was but a scientific fact, and twice a day the chaplain called and left a little tract. And twice a day he smoked his pipe and drank his quart of beer. His soul was resolute and held no hiding place for fear. He often said that he was glad the hangman's day was near. But why he said so strange a thing no warder dared to ask. For he to whom a watcher's doom is given as his task must set a lock upon his lips and make his face a mask. Or else he might be moved and try to comfort or console. And what should human pity do pent up in murderer's hole? What word of grace in such a place could help a brother's soul? With slouch and swing around the ring we trod the fool's parade. We did not care, we knew we were the devil's own brigade, and shaven head and feet of lead make a merry masquerade. We tore the tarry rope to shreds with blunt and bleeding nails. We rubbed the doors and scrubbed the floors and cleaned the shining rails, and rank by rank we soaked the plank and clattered with the pails. We sewed the sacks, we broke the stones, we turned the dusty drill, we banged the tins and bawled the hymns and sweated on the mill. But in the heart of every man, terror was lying still. So still it lay that every day crawled like a weed-clogged wave, and we forgot the bitter lot that waits for fool and knave, till once, as we tramped in from work, we passed an open grave. With yawning mouth the yellow hole gaped for a living thing. The very mud cried out for blood to the thirsty asphalt ring. And we knew that ere one dawn grew fair, some prisoner had to swing. Right in we went, with soul intent on death and dread and doom. The hangman with his little bag went shuffling through the gloom. And I trembled as I groped my way into my numbered tomb. That night the empty corridors were full of forms of fear, and up and down the iron town stole feet we could not hear, and through the bars that hide the stars white faces seemed to peer. He lay as one who lies and dreams in a pleasant meadowland. The watchers watched him as he slept, and could not understand how one could sleep so sweet a sleep with a hangman close at hand. But there is no sleep when men must weep, who never yet have wept. So we, the fool, the fraud, the knave, that endless vigil kept, and through each brain, on hands of pain, another's terror crept. Alas, it is a fearful thing to feel another's guilt, for right within the sword of sin pierced to its poisoned hilt, and as molten lead were the tears we shed for the blood we had not spilt. 
The warders, with their shoes of felt, crept by each padlocked door, and peeped and saw, with eyes of awe, grey figures on the floor, and wondered why men knelt to pray who never prayed before. All through the night we knelt and prayed, mad mourners of a course. The troubled plumes of midnight shook like the plumes upon a hearse. The bitter wine upon a sponge was the savour of remorse. The grey cock crew, the red cock crew, but never came the day. The crooked shapes of terror crouched in the corners where we lay, and each evil sprite that walks by night before us seemed to play. They glided past, they glided fast, like travellers through a mist. They mocked the moon in a rigadoon of delicate turn and twist, and with formal pace and loathsome grace the phantoms kept their tryst. With mop and mow we saw them go, slim shadows hand in hand. About, about, in ghostly rout they trod a saraband, and the damned grotesques made arabesques like the wind upon the sand. With the pirouettes of marionettes they tripped on pointed tread, but with flutes of fear they filled the ear as their grisly mask they led, and loud they sang and long they sang, for they sang to wake the dead. Oh-ho, they cried, the world is wide, but fettered limbs go lame, and once or twice to throw the dice is a gentlemanly game, but he does not win who plays with sin in the secret house of shame. No things of air these antics were that frolicked with such glee to men whose lives were held in jives and whose feet might not go free. Ah, wounds of Christ, they were living things, most terrible to see. Around, around they waltzed and wound, some wheeled in smirking pairs, with the mincing step of a demirep, some sidled up the stairs, and with subtle sneer and fawning leer each helped us at our prayers. The morning wind began to moan, but still the night went on. Through its giant loom the web of gloom crept till each thread was spun, and as we prayed we grew afraid of the justice of the sun. The moaning wind went wandering round the weeping prison wall, till like a wheel of turning steel we felt the minutes crawl. O oh, moaning wind, what had we done to have such a seneschal? At last I saw the shadowed bars, like a lattice wrought in lead, move right across the whitewashed wall that faced my three-plank bed, and I knew that somewhere in the world God's dreadful dawn was red. At six o'clock we cleaned our cells, at seven all was still, but the sough and swing of a mighty wing the prison seemed to fill, but the Lord of Death with icy breath had entered in to kill. He did not pass in purple pomp, nor ride a moon-white steed. Three yards of cord and a sliding board are all the gallows need. So with rope of shame the herald came to do the secret deed. We were as men who through a fen of filthy darkness grope. We did not dare to breathe a prayer or to give our anguish scope. Something was dead in each of us, and what was dead was hope. For man's grim justice goes its way and will not swerve aside. It slays the weak, it slays the strong, it has a deadly stride. With iron heel it slays the strong, the monstrous parricide. We waited for the stroke of eight. Each tongue was thick with thirst, 
for the stroke of eight is the stroke of fate that makes a man accursed, and fate will use a running noose for the best man and the worst. We had no other thing to do save to wait for the sign to come, so like things of stone in a valley lone, quiet we sat and dumb. But each man's heart beat thick and quick like a madman on a drum. With sudden shock the prison clock smote on the shivering air, and from all the jail rose up a wail of impotent despair, like the sound that frightened marshes hear from some leper in his lair. And as one sees most fearful things in the crystal of a dream, we saw the greasy hempen rope hooked to the blackened beam, and heard the prayer the hangman's snare strangled into a scream. And all the woe that moved him so that he gave that bitter cry, and the wild regrets and the bloody sweats, none knew so well as I. For he who lives more lives than one, more deaths than one must die. There is no chapel on the day on which they hang a man. The chaplain's heart is far too sick, or his face is far too wan, or there is that written in his eyes which none should look upon. So they kept us close till nigh on noon, and then they rang the bell, and the warders with their jingling keys opened each listening cell, and down the iron stair we tramped, each from his separate hell. Out into God's sweet air we went, but not in wonted way, for this man's face was white with fear, and that man's face was grey, and I never saw sad men who looked so wistfully at the day. I never saw sad men who looked with such a wistful eye upon that little tent of blue we prisoners called the sky, and at every happy cloud that passed in happy freedom by. But there were those amongst us all who walked with downcast head, and knew that had each got his due, they should have died instead. He had but killed a thing that lived, whilst they had killed the dead. For he who sins a second time wakes a dead soul to pain, and draws it from its spotted shroud and makes it bleed again, and makes it bleed great gouts of blood, and makes it bleed in vain. Like ape or clown in monstrous garb with crooked arrows starred, silently we went round and round the slippery asphalt yard. Silently we went round and round, and no man spoke a word. Silently we went round and round, and through each hollow mind the memory of dreadful things rushed like a dreadful wind, and horror stalked before each man, and terror crept behind. The warders strutted up and down, and watched their herd of brutes. Their uniforms were spick and span, and they wore their Sunday suits, but we knew the work they had been at by the quicklime on their boots. For where a grave had opened wide, there was no grave at all, only a stretch of mud and sand by the hideous prison wall, and a little heap of burning lime that the man should have his pall. For he has a pall, this wretched man, such as few men can claim. Deep down below a prison yard, naked for greater shame, he lies with fetters on each foot, wrapped in a sheet of flame. And all the while the burning lime eats flesh and bone away. It eats the brittle bone by night and the soft flesh by day. It eats the flesh and bone by turns, 
but it eats the heart alway. For three long years they will not sow or root or seedling there. For three long years the unblessed spot will sterile be and bear, and look upon the wandering sky with unreproachful stare. They think a murderer's heart would taint each simple seed they sow. It is not true. God's kindly earth is kindlier than men know, and the red rose would but blow more red, the white rose whiter blow. Out of his mouth a red, red rose, out of his heart a white, for who can say by what strange way Christ brings his will to light, since the barren staff the pilgrim bore bloomed in the great Pope's sight. But neither milk-white rose nor red may bloom in prison air. The shard, the pebble, and the flint are what they give us there, for flowers have been known to heal a common man's despair. So never will wine-red rose or white petal by petal fall on that stretch of mud and sand that lies by the hideous prison wall to tell the men who tramp the yard that God's son died for all. Yet though the hideous prison wall still hems him round and round, and a spirit may not walk by night that is with fetters bound, and a spirit may but weep that lies in such unholy ground, he is at peace, this wretched man, at peace, or will be soon. There is no thing to make him mad, nor does terror walk at noon, for the lampless earth in which he lies has neither sun nor moon. They hanged him as a beast is hanged, they did not even toll a requiem that might have brought rest to his startled soul. They stripped him of his canvas clothes and hid him in a hole. The warders stripped him of his clothes and gave him to the flies, they mocked the swollen purple throat and the stark and staring eyes, and with laughter loud they heaped the shroud in which their convict lies. The chaplain would not kneel to pray by his dishonoured grave, nor mark it with that blessed cross that Christ for sinners gave, because the man was one of those whom Christ came down to save. Yet all is well, he has but passed to life's appointed bourne and alien tears will fill for him pity's long-broken urn, for his mourners will be outcast men, and outcasts always mourn. The Ballad of Reading Jail by Oscar Wilde, and we're celebrating the fact that it was his birthday. Well, this weekend, it's kind of Oscar Wilde's birthday weekend. Um, he, as I mentioned, he left, um, and he went to France, I should say, after he was released from Reading Jail, and never returned to England. But I think he's probably best known for some brilliant quotes. Um, I've got a few here. Uh, this is from Lady Windermere's fan in 1892. We are all in the gutter, but some of us looking at the stars. Another one from Lady Windermere's fan. Always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. Another one. Be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. Uh, <laughs> and I quite like, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. Brilliant. Uh, was it Landy? Another quote I quite like from Oscar Wilde. It's not his famous one, but only dull people are brilliant at breakfast. I can kind of relate to that, you know, as I tend to write quite late at night. And, um, you know, I'm not comparing myself in any way, shape or form with Oscar Wilde. Although, of course, my version of A Christmas Carol is opening off-Broadway this year. Yeah. In fact, if you've got a cheap room you can loan me in New York in December, just, you know, 
Get in touch, yeah? Uh, the email address, as always, for everything else, not just a, a room in New York, because my a Christmas Carol with Guy Masterson is opening off Broadway at the Soho uh, Playhouse. That's slightly ironic, isn't it? Bear in mind the London Literary... Oh, sorry about that. I should have turned that off. Sorry. Uh, the London Literary Pub Crawl st- uh, runs around Soho in London. Yes, the Soho Playhouse. Um, yes, my a Christmas Carol is going to be there. I'm hoping to get over there in December. So, yeah, if you've got a place, then let me know. <laughs> Or, of course, if you'd like to get in touch about anything, then do. Two email addresses. I've got one sorted now. It's nick at bohemianbritain.com. Nick at bohemianbritain.com. Or you can still use radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk. Radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk. It's always lovely to hear from you. And again, if you've got an event or you've written something yourself, then just get in touch and we'll give it a shout because it's as easy as all that, ain't it? Yes, it is. Thank you very much for your company this time. I shall see you next time. I'm Nick Hennigan on bohemianbritain.com. But mainly, this is Literary London on Resonance 104.4 FM. <laughs>